Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 43 in our series for 2018. And today's date is Friday, December the 7th. First, I talk to Steve Hoy, CEO of the Anossi Foundation, a not-for-profit organisation created to disrupt the big power companies through communities and decentralization of power generation. And then I talked to economist Nicholas Gruen, exploring why we are still having financial scandals and what we can do about it. But first, let's talk to Steve Hoy. Uh, Steve Hoy, tell us about the Anossi Foundation. Well, Anossi is a uh, not-for-profit foundation that's being set up basically to try to disrupt um, big retail electric companies. Um, with uh, a community energy program. Uh, that's what we're all about, yeah. So how does that work? Well, the, uh, the system is designed essentially to allow people to trade energy between themselves and, and, and to do that kind of anywhere across, uh, across our national market, in fact, in, in any similar national market worldwide, by allowing those trades to settle out first before uh, the retailer who's uh, associated with the system buys and sells whatever we don't buy and sell between ourselves. 
So you basically uh, get yourself an, uh, an application or, or, or an online um, web uh, service, and, and you uh, join up with the energy community. Uh, you choose for yourself the people that you want to buy and sell energy with um, from other members of that community um, and agree a trade price uh, between them. So that, that price could be anything that you, between you, choose. You might be trying to arbitrage the difference between um, the feed-in tariff that you normally get from your retailer and, and the normal price that people pay for electricity. Or indeed, you might be trying to do something different, like make a donation to a local community organisation or um, or indeed pay for someone else's energy as uh, some kind of commercial proposition. So any of those things will work. You would have actually had partnerships and agreements with uh, energy retailers and players in the industry, wouldn't you? Yeah, you need to do that. To make the thing work, um, basically we need to attract a retailer to the platform who's, uh, who's prepared to buy and sell the unders and overs, and so there's that energy that we don't buy and sell between ourselves. And, uh, yeah, we've signed up a couple of, um, of innovative small retailers to take on that role, and we have another couple in the wings that are also uh, uh, looking to participate uh, as the platform uh, comes live uh, later this year. So can you give me some examples of some of the energy retailers and players in the industry that you've signed yeah. up I can certainly uh, nominate the ones that we've signed up with. So um, Energy Locals is, is, uh, is our first um, uh, group. They're based in Melbourne and Richmond, and um, they have uh, you know innovative kind of uh, energy plan approach where essentially they um, they pass through the wholesale costs and then charge a fixed fee for the rest of their service, which is an interesting model. But it also makes um, the trading of energy quite transparent for their model because the fixed charges are, are set aside and we just um, are trading the energy. So they're very keen to make it happen, and they're working with us on the definition of the of the solution as we speak. And so we'll be uh, looking forward to attracting customers onto that later this year. Um, the other one is um, a group called Inova Energy out of Byron Bay in northern New South Wales. Again, their focus is on community energy and looking at, um, at ways that uh, the community can support itself um, and, and for people within that community to uh, exchange energy services with each other. And uh, are there any offshore that you've, you've teed up? Yeah, there's there's a few things coming coming and going. So basically, the platform will work anywhere worldwide that we have this kind of deregulated model, um, or anywhere where you can essentially get transparency across uh, the grid charges or exemption from those grid charges. So, but most of the target markets are where we have deregulated models, like Australia. Um, so we're uh, heading on to Japan next week to talk to some retailers up there. I can't announce anything just yet, but there's some um, some interested players in there. They only opened up their markets just last year. And um, in the U.S., there are interesting organisations called uh, Consumer Choice Cooperatives, which are um, basically setting up similar um, ideas, which uh, would certainly benefit from from using our platform. Uh, we have a, a, a partner in the Bahamas, of all places, called Sustainable Energy, who are looking to uh, deploy solar farms, and then um, and then attract a community to uh, to buy the output from the solar farm. So all of those models are possible using the platform. I'd imagine there'd be a lot of research would go into your work, wouldn't it? Yeah, we have to research a lot of things. Obviously, um, the energy markets themselves, although that's helped by the fact that I've been working in the energy space myself for 35 years, um, and I've been consulting to major utilities all over the planet um, for the last 20-plus uh, years uh, in my previous roles with, um, with PwC and also IBM Consulting. But uh, we're also looking very much into the technology stack itself to find the, the optimal solution to doing these kinds of trades. And that's where we landed on the various blockchain solutions that, we're, that we are uh, deploying. That's interesting. Tell us about these blockchain solutions. Blockchain is, uh, is the heart and soul of it. So basically, um, without going into too much detail on this, the, the blockchain was invented 
really uh, initially to, to facilitate um, Bitcoin. And, and Bitcoin itself, uh, one of its major issues and the reason why they had to effectively invent blockchain was to ensure that people don't spend the same dollar twice or the same Bitcoin twice. Um, so in the energy space, we have a very similar problem. If you're going to uh, buy and sell energy from each other, you need to be sure that the person you're buying from didn't sell that same bit of energy to somebody else. So the double spend problem exists in the energy trading world also. Um, so we have the same problem, same solution. Uh, use the blockchains to make all of those um, those trades transparent so that uh, nobody can, can fake it. That means uh, you know exactly where it goes. Yeah, and, and that's the thing about electricity. I mean, physically, you can't really physically say that electricity goes from any one place to any one other place. It's, uh, it's really a, a, you know, an energy wave, effectively, that's, uh, that's transmitted across a conductor. Um, but what you can do is, is make sure the accounting all stacks up. So we measure the outputs of generating sites and we measure the inputs of consumers, and we just make sure that um, none of that gets uh, double-counted or, or lost along the way. Are you doing anything with green energy adoption? The whole thing is about green energy adoption, Leon. Um, the founders of Inosi are also the founders of a, a company called Solar Analytics, and they're very much at the forefront of solar PV research in their previous history with um, uh, University of New South Wales. And also, and uh, Solar Analytics Business itself is one of the leaders in that field. They basically um, uh, provide software to the owners of rooftop solar and uh, commercial solar systems to, to analyse its output and better get its performance. It was their customers that came to and said we want a better, something better to do with our output. Instead of just getting a feed-in tariff from the local retailer, we'd like to be able to set up these communities. So I kind of um, grasped up that, that bull by the horns and said, um, you yeah, know, this is the way to really promote renewable energy, is to encourage the deployment of solar on every rooftop um, by making it um, available to everybody and making the outputs you know, tradable and uh, getting you know, more and more engagement um, for this kind of uh, platform. You know, frankly, the big retailers and, and the big grid companies, they're not really welcoming solar. You know, it's not in their interests um, if you're a large energy oligopoly. Um, you know, they lose some 40% or something of their revenue for every solar household. But, uh, but for the small retailers, this is a way to encourage innovation and to, and to get some mind share. Tell us about that innovation you're seeking to encourage. Yeah, that's that's very much it. So while, as I said, we need um, a licensed retailer to to um, trade for us in the wholesale market, you know that energy that we don't trade between ourselves, um, within the communities, all sorts of innovations possible. We've got all sorts of you know, interesting schemes coming to the fore. So um, there are you know, simple things like um, you know, what's called peer-to-peer trading, where you and I set a price between ourselves. But then there's much more fascinating things like, for instance, high school programs where they put maybe 50 kilowatt system on the roof of the high school and look, look for a buyer for that energy during the school holidays. Well, the perfect buyers are sitting right in front of them, um, all the parents. And the parents are perfectly happy to uh, support the school by buying the school's excess solar in the, in the school holidays, as I said, or after 4 p.m. And here's the interesting thing, that those buyers are far less sensitive to the price of a kilowatt hour because they're doing something for their community. And the same thing applies with all sorts of other community schemes. And the second thing that really, in innovative space, that really kind of um, lines up in the same way, there are various commercial propositions when you can bundle energy with your product. Then again, the price of energy isn't, doesn't become the key deciding factor around it. So, for instance, I worked on a project um, uh, before Anosi uh, in the Netherlands uh, where BMW is selling their electric vehicles and aiming to sell them fully charged, to charge them for you, uh, pay, the, pay the bill effectively for charging the, the car in your own garage. 
And again, the blockchain was the way to prove the provenance of that. And the other interesting part about that is you were, in effect, increasing competition within each segment of the supply chain because uh, you're providing tools that enable new entrants to participate in the market. Yeah, precisely. Not just tools, but tools that will provide, um, as, uh, as I said, on an open source basis and, and effectively for nothing for those organisations, our missions to disrupt and, um, and to allow those organisations to, uh, to adapt the platforms uh, to their own innovation uh, and their own business models, for sure. So, in effect, what you're doing is you're decentralising energy trading and you're bringing in sustainable energy. Yeah, those things are the key objectives of what we're trying to achieve. Um, you know, there's, there's uh, lots of complexity behind it, but um, this is uh, the, the simple outcome that we're aiming for. I guess uh, the sector is, uh, is inundated with outdated and very heavily regulated practices, so uh, it would be ripe for disruption from an LC, wouldn't it? Yeah, and that's true um, around the world. You know, we, we went through this wave of deregulation in the power sector. In Australia, it started in the 1990s, and that's true largely around Europe uh, as well. Uh, and it's you know, continuing to, to permeate around the world. But, but while they call it deregulation, in reality, it's just a re-regulation. We get a disaggregation across the value chain, so generations now separate from transmission and distribution and, and the retailing of electricity. But after that happened... There's, a, there's been a kind of re-aggregation. The, the retailers buy the gen tailors and the, the, the generators and become gen tailors in order to manage their risk. And then they acquire whoever they can and build their customer bases so they can be um, as, as large a scale as possible. And all these, all these things uh, end up kind of back where we started, which is um, oligopolies that behave in, in a way that doesn't uh, you know, really um, encourage the, the best kind of competition. So, yeah, we need to lower the barriers for the small guys, and that's what we're going to do. And I suppose your ultimate goal would be to replace the middleman in the selling and delivery of retail energy and enable communities and small business startups to focus on clean energy. Well, frankly, you're right. The The process of retailing electricity, um, it's, it's, it's pretty much ripe to be automated almost end-to-end because... You can, you know, it's a, it's a function of buying electricity in the wholesale market. Um, that's an algorithmic kind of um, process to try to optimise uh, your buying costs and the management contracts in, in that environment. And on the retail side, well, you don't have to physically do anything. The electricity is, is delivered across uh, the grid. Um, the meters uh, measure it and that's sent to you. And all you have to do is put it into your, uh, your billing system and, and essentially uh, build the customer for it. So retailing at a very simple level, it can be completely automated. Um, by yeah, enabling this, this kind of platform, um, what we think can ultimately happen, and it's always off yet, but um, is to effectively you know, get rid of retailing altogether. Well, Steve Hoy, that sounds fantastic, and thank you very much for your time. Okay, it's been my pleasure, Leo. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Gruen. Uh, Nicholas Gruen, the Royal Commission shows we keep getting financial scandals. I mean, surely we should have learnt our lessons now, post-Enron and HIH. Why hasn't this been stopped by financial regulation? Well, I, I guess I'd sort of give you on, a, on the one hand and then on the other. I guess we don't regulate to prevent all things going wrong because then we'd regulate to prevent all things uh, going right. Uh, we would over-regulate. So, so we shouldn't be too panicked by the fact that every now and again there is a, a problem uh, however, it's pretty obvious in the case of the uh, Banking Royal Commission, there's a lot been going on and it's been pretty systematic. Uh, the other thing is you have to worry about systemic problems. Uh, and if a bank goes down, then the whole system gets infected. The thing that that strikes me about this 
is that we are part of a culture which uh, commercial culture there's a there's an expression and i looked it up on ingram a google thing which enables you to map uh, how frequently expressions and words uh, appear and there's an expression which actually didn't exist before the 1990s and listeners will know what it means it's called stretching the envelope and our what we've done is we've built a culture in which everyone stretches the envelope and i think that's partly a consequence of self-seeking people in a complex environment but we haven't helped it by not being serious about the kinds of safeguards that we already have in place in that regard i'm talking about things like audit so if you think of the scandal of enron and i suspect many of the scandals and now we're talking more about um companies getting into financial difficulties rather than ripping off their customers but if you think about those things they invariably occur or very typically occur with a cozy relationship between an auditor who has been persuaded to look at the company accounts in the way that the company wants them to look at them and that conceals the problems until they blow up and guess what around the world in capitalist countries we uh, firms appoint the auditors that audit them that's a conflict of interest it's crazy uh but there you are that's that's how we deliver this public good of trying to make sure that the private accounts of companies are actually truthful we get the, the we have a discipline called auditing and then people get to choose their own auditor and that is a that's a fatal flaw. You paint a pretty depressing picture of this market for information through audit. I mean, what specifically is wrong? Uh well, what's wrong with it is that if I get to appoint my auditor, we both share an interest in to use that expression again, stretching the envelope. And audit exists to stop people stretching the envelope. Audit exists so that the private accounts that are kept and then made public to uh investors who may want to trade or whoever wants access to those accounts that those accounts represent reality rather than a version of reality that reflects conflicts of interest of the company to present itself in a particular way and the auditor to get the audit contract so that's what's wrong with it and uh we just have to decide whether we're serious about this or not this happens all over the place so in government uh we have a regime in which we have regulatory impact statements guess who gets to do the regulatory impact statement the very agency that is trying to get the regulation through so in this area and in oodles of other areas that i've documented in a recent article our system of information is essentially corrupt it's it has a it suffers from a form of soft corruption in its own subtle way the way in which conflicts of interests are imported into these markets for information subtly slowly but very profoundly degrade the quality of the information in them and as a result no one believes them and things are much more expensive and inefficient than they need to be. How do you make money as an auditor? You stretch the envelope. These are huge salaries paid to financial executives operating both for the firm and for the audit company. That's where big money is made by stretching the envelope by corrupting the market for 
clean information about what's going on. So what can be done about it? Uh, essentially, auditors should not be uh, appointed by their uh, should not be appointed by the firms that they audit. Uh, so we need to try and think of mechanisms of uh, trying to retain some degree of competition in audit, uh, but not but for audit not to be uh, at the gift of the company. Uh, you, you, you can imagine plenty of ways of doing that. Uh, you can you can have uh, voluntary societies that that allocate um, auditors. Uh, that there, there are plenty of there, there are plenty of ways to do it. The government the government could uh, run some kind of scheme, uh, but 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 this is just one area. I mean, if if governments want regulation, a, a proper regulatory impact statement, it shouldn't be provided by the agency that's trying to get the regulation through. Uh, likewise, environmental protection. And so on and so forth. So we've set up this system. Uh, it's a, a kind of a, a yes minister system in which, in which uh, Lord Atkin at the turn of the 20th century had a nice expression. He said that uh, Gough Whitlam used to quote this, that rowing was the perfect preparation for public life because it enabled you to face in one direction while you were going in the other. And that's essentially what a lot of these systems do. Very inefficient. Uh, there's a, there's a guy called John Ioannidis, who has been documenting this for years and years. Uh, so, so, so these are the kinds of things that I would argue should be seen as part of economic reform. Economic reform is about looking around for ways in which markets are performing less well than they could and trying to come up with ways to improve them. But that's uh, a little bolder than our own idea of economic reform, which is much more focused on just deregulating. So if you look at what the Productivity Commission has said about medicine, I mean, the one thing I can find in the list of reforms that the Productivity Commission has published is that pharmacies, uh, we should deregulate the rule that says that pharmacies can only be owned by pharmacists. Well, maybe we should, but that's small fry compared to the sort of things I'm talking about. So how else could the Productivity Commission help? Well, the, the Productivity Commission, uh, in its frequent experiments with the thickness of the report on things like science, it's done numerous inquiries, it's done several inquiries into science. Uh, it could document these things. It could then strategize about how we fix them. And how, uh, the, all this is publicly funded. Uh, so there are there are plenty of things that we could do. So there's some pain, but there would be very considerable gain from it. Uh, so, you know, that old, uh, that old uh, sort of saying in economic reform, no pain, no gain. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not, but here it is true. And it's the sort of thing that uh, if, we're, if we're trying to work out how to make our markets work better, it's the sort of, sort of thing we should have our... our uh, we should focus on. Well, Nicholas Green, that sounds fascinating, and obviously there's a lot of work ahead of us. <laughs> if anyone wants to do it. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, US President Donald Trump and his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, 
have agreed to halt new trade tariffs for 90 days to allow for talks. At a post-G20 summit meeting in Buenos Aires, Mr Trump agreed not to boost tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods from 10% to 25% on the 1st of January. China will buy a very substantial amount of agricultural, industrial and energy products. Meanwhile, Beijing says the two sides agreed to open up their market. It was the first face-to-face -face meeting between the two leaders since a trade war erupted earlier this year. Looking further out, though, we have to remain cautious. While tension has thawed, little has actually been resolved. It's little more than an agreement to keep talking. Nonetheless, markets around the world rose on the news, but they have since wound back as investors have become more sceptical about whether the truce will hold amidst fears of an economic slowdown. At the same time, Trump became more combative, and he tweeted, President Xi and I want this deal to happen, and it probably will, but if not, remember, I am a tariff man. When people or countries come in to raid the great wealth of our nation, I want them to pay for the privilege of doing so. It will always be the best way to max out our economic power. And in another interesting piece of news... Big Tobacco is making its move on marijuana. Marlboro cigarette maker Altria is in early stages to acquire Canadian cannabis producer Kronos as it seeks to diversify its business beyond traditional smokers. Kronos has not yet agreed to any deal and there's no certainty it will do so. And the news comes as Altria has already eyed a significant minority stake in e-cigarette company Juul. And to Australia. And the Reserve Bank has left official interest rates on hold at a record low of 1.5% for the 26th consecutive RBA board meeting. And, after a spurt of growth in the first half of the year, Australia's economy appears to be slowing much more rapidly than expected. Gross domestic product grew by 0.3% in the three months of September, or 2.8% over the year. Now that is a significant step down from the 3.4% growth recorded in the second quarter. The result is well below the analyst consensus of 3.3% and it reflects weaker than expected construction and capital expenditure data as well as a general softening in the housing sector. And ANZ Australian job advertisements fell 0.3% in November, reversing the prior month's gain. On an annual basis, growth slowed to 2.3% in November versus 3.7% in October. And that is the slowest growth in ANZ Australian job ads in more than three years, since May 2015. And Australia's manufacturing sector slowed sharply in November, adding to concerns about the broader economic outlook. The Australian Industry Group's Performance of Manufacturing Index slumped to 51.3 last month in seasonally adjusted terms. That's down seven points on the level reported in October. And that is the lowest level since October 2017. And to the housing market and the number of dwellings approved in Australia fell by 1.1% in October 2018, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. This continues a trend that has been going on for the last 12 months, and the decrease in October was mainly driven by private sector dwellings, excluding houses, which fell 1.8%. Private sector houses also declined by 0.5%. And at the same time, Australia's housing market has taken another leg down, with Sydney, Melbourne and Perth continuing to lead the declines. CoreLogic's monthly figures show prices fell 0.7% nationally last month, and there was a 0.9% slide in the capital cities and a 0.1% fall in the regions. Now, Sydney prices dropped 1.4% in November, 
That brings the city's total peak to trough decline to 9.5%. That's almost on par with the previous record fall of 9.6% between 1989 and 1991. When, and that was when interest rates were in the high teens. And unemployment was rising towards double digits and Australia was entering recession. And company profits posted a solid headline rise of 1.9% in the third quarter, following an upwardly revised rise of 2.4% in the second quarter. But after adjusting for inventory valuations, the result was not quite as solid. Non-financial profits on a GDP basis rose 1.2%. And the Coalition this week faced an uphill battle passing legislation, giving the Treasurer unprecedented powers to break up energy companies. Crossbench MPs resisted the changes, while Labor seized on industry warnings that the planned big-stick legislation would increase sovereign risk, cut investment in energy infrastructure and lead to higher power prices. What happened was a nervous backbench forced the government to turn the big stick legislation into more of a twig. So that now power is taken away from the Treasurer to break up energy companies and instead it's given to the courts. Now the Coalition needed two crossbench MPs to get its legislation through the 150 member Legislative Assembly. And this comes at a time when the government's approach to energy legislation faces a high court challenge. Leading competition lawyers say bypassing the courts would be unconstitutional. And this coincides with Australia's biggest energy and business groups banding together to urge the government to abandon this approach to energy legislation, warning that a vestigial powers the government craves will impede investment and create genuine sovereign risk. And the move has prompted the Australian Energy Council, the Australian Industry Group, the Business Council of Australia and others to join together to appeal the government to abandon its plans, which it says will, in their words, specifically discourage badly needed investment in the energy sector. At the same time, Labor and the Greens will attempt to prevent the Morrison government from underwriting new coal-fired power as the energy policy battle moves into its next phase. Labor will support a Greens bill stopping the Commonwealth from providing financial assistance to coal-fired power plants, and there is an effort to secure the requisite parliamentary numbers for an upset as the Morrison government moves ahead with its energy package. And Grandcore, the dominant force in East Coast grain handling, has received a non-binding indicative proposal from long-term asset partners that value its stock at $10.42 a share. And the deal is valued at a bold $2.4 billion and comes just as the agricultural giant was considering its own acquisition. And wholesaler Metcash's net profit rose 3% to $95.8 million in the six months to June 31. Strong growth in hardware and modest gains in food and convenience were partially offset by weaker liquor earnings following the adoption of a new accounting standard, which exclude charge through sales. Group earnings before interest and tax rose 1.2% to 158.1 million. That's up 1.9% before the adoption of a new accounting standard, AASB 15. And much needed rain has finally fallen over some of the country's drought-affected regions, but seasonal concerns continue to hang over the outlook for Australia's agricultural sector, according to the latest Rabobank Rural Confidence Survey. While rain had spurred a lift in overall rural confidence from its recent 12-year low, the final quarterly Rural Confidence Survey for 2018 found that 40% of the nation's farmers continue to hold a pessimistic outlook for the year ahead, with drought the primary concern. The recent rainfall having come too late to bolster winter crop prospects and with follow-up rain needed to break the drought. But it was a vastly different story in the west of the country, with West Australian farmers looking to reap half the nation's winter crop. 
Seasonal differences aside, overall, the nation's farmers indicated they felt prepared to navigate the impacts of drought. A total of 94% of surveyed farming businesses indicated some level of preparedness for drought, and more than 50% said they were more prepared now than five years ago. And the job cuts at Fairfax have started. Nine Entertainment Chief Executive Hugh Marks has confirmed that 144 positions will be made redundant as a result of the company's recently approved takeover of Fairfax Media. The job cuts at Fairfax are part of a plan to slash costs by $50 million. Now, jobs in back office areas are targeted, although information technology positions will be spared. In a statement to Nine staff, Marks said the roles will be eliminated due to duplication in the wake of the merger, which will also see some vacant positions no longer required. Now, Westpac Banking Corps Director Craig Dunn and Australian New Zealand Banking Group Director Paula Dwyer are set to bear the brunt of a backlash against bank executive pay at their upcoming shareholder meetings. Now, the banks face a major protest vote over bank bonuses. Now, the ANZ is likely to follow the Commonwealth Bank and avoid a strike after major proxy firms sided with a bank, despite a revolt led by the industry's super funds. And the administrators of failed engineering firm RCR Tomlinson have revealed the company has debts totaling hundreds of millions of dollars, including up to $250 million owed to about 4,000 subcontractors and suppliers. Administrators McGrath-Nickel revealed to creditors across the country that RCA's total unpaid debts were up to $630 million. And the administrators couldn't even say how much of that was, was recoverable until it started to sell off parts of the business. McGrath-Nickel partner Jason Preston told creditors that initial investigations revealed the company's collapse was largely caused by problems with its solar farm developments, which left the business exposed to a number of risks, particularly if there were project delays. The company, which employed 2,800 people directly and engaged with thousands of subcontracting firms across dozens of projects around the country, went into administration last month after its bank refused to lend it more money to pay its debts. At its peak in August last year, RCR Tomlinson was valued at almost $1 billion. Now, since McGrath-Nickel was appointed, the company's workforce was reduced by 270, and most of those redundancies came from the company's infrastructure arm, which includes its solar contracts. And ResMed, an ASX-listed leader in cloud-connected medical device and out-of-hospital software-as-a-service business solutions, has announced plans to acquire Propeller Health, a digital therapeutics company providing connected health solutions for people living with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and asthma. And they want to buy it for $225 million. And CBS and Network 10 are taking on Netflix, Foxtel and Stan with a subscription video-on-demand service. 10 All Access will have more than 7,000 episodes of commercial-free entertainment from CBS and 10. It costs $9.99 a month, plus a month free for new subscribers. It will be available on iOS and Android mobile and tablet devices, Apple TV, Android TV, Chromecast, and online via 10allaccess.com.au. And the consumer watchdog is taking TPG to the federal court for allegedly pocketing millions of dollars from a non-refundable fee it told its internet customers was a prepayment. The Australian Competition Consumer Commission says customers signing up to a TPG internet plan have had to pay $20 for what was described as a prepayment to cover potential costs, such as overseas phone calls not included in their plan. The watchdog says that since March 2013, 
TPG said on its website that the prepayment could be used for excluded services prior to a plan being cancelled. But TPG actually retained at least half, and potentially all, of the prepayment when a customer cancelled their plan, according to ACCC. And that's it for this week. And next week, which will be my last for the year, I have a terrific interview with Steve Orenstein, founder and CEO of zoom to You, a user-friendly delivery platform that connects businesses and individuals to a fast and reliable community of couriers and allows people to track where the parcel is in real time via GPS technology and provides the driver's contact details. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Take care, be good to one another, and I look forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.